Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. Superbosses by Sidney Finkelstein is the book that we're covering in this week's podcast. What a great name Sidney Finkelstein is or Finkelstein. This book is, it's about what makes great leaders. Now we've talked a lot about this before, but one of the reasons I that, that attracted me to this book was that he essentially breaks leaders down into uh, three main headings, if you like, or three main kind of buckets, whatever you want to call it. Iconoclasts, glorious bastards, and nurturers. So according to the author, they are the, the three ways to understand what type of leader you are, or you may want to be, or to identify great leaders that you've worked under before. One of the really interesting things that he says is that a good leader doesn't necessarily give a shit about you personally. They could drive you to a distraction with making you work all hours of the day. They don't necessarily care about your personal life. They care about winning or getting things done. But in this book, this book is, is full of stories, so I'm not going to go into all the stories. It's definitely worth a read. If you're the kind of uh, reader who likes to, to 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 hear the stories behind the, the actionable content, but uh, he he makes the point that those those leaders, those super bosses, as he calls them, those super bosses who are uh, bastards, basically, those glorious bastards. Uh, even though you might not necessarily like the person, twenty years later you still remember them. As being one of the, uh, and you remember the the time under them as being some of the greatest uh, times in your in your professional career, even though while you were living through it, uh, you you hated the person, uh, you felt nothing but stress the whole time, and the point is that this super boss pushes you on uh, to to achieving more than you ever thought possible. So he says that the the super bosses are everywhere. He talks about Miles Davis, the 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 um, the jazz player. And then he talks about the CEO of Kraft Foods and the CEO of Campbell Soup and Gillette and all these people who are completely different uh, industries. So like Miles Davis playing jazz and uh, somebody else making soup and everyone in between. And he says they can be from anywhere, any industry and any type of home life, which is really important because some of those people uh, came from nothing, pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, all that good stuff, and, and turned themselves into very successful people. But some of them were born into, like with a silver spoon in their mouth, basically, and they, they uh, never had to try that hard, but still became these super bosses. There's lots of, there's lots of uh, characteristics of these super bosses that we're going to get into. And the idea behind this episode today is that you understand which bits you want to go and deliberately practice with the action log or the bits that you think, yeah, that's not really me. I'm not really that kind of, like say, I'm not the, the glorious bastard who's going to make somebody work until, you know, 1 a.m. every day. Maybe I'm more of a nurturer, right? So anyway, I'll get into what the three are and, what, and, and how we define them or how the, the author defines them. But what I want you to do with this episode is there's lots of kind of, like I said, characteristics, little like say for example a super boss has a has a very clear and bold vision and is uh, brutally competitive right they have that competitiveness that is just born in them or that they've developed over time 
it's those kinds of things that you kind of you should kind of you know stare at the window and think well do i do that is that something that i do or is that something that i could do is it something that i notice in somebody who i'm thinking about promoting um the idea is we're, we're everything we do at use because i've told you this before but everything we do at use because is to is to help you either become the leader you want to become or to identify the next leaders of your organization. So anyway, Superboss is a clear and bold vision and they are brutally competitive and they basically fear nothing. But the three types of Superbosses, according to Sidney Finkelstein, first one is the iconoclast, right? Somebody like Miles Davis, who doesn't really give a shit about what people think of his work. The story goes that when Miles Davis would be playing at the club, that he would actually turn his back on the audience and his focus would be on the rest of the band. To to He wanted them all to create something incredible in the moment and to kind of have that flow state. The fact that there were people behind him who were enjoying the uh, the performance was, you know, wasn't that, that important to him. Uh, if he inspired people, that was a side effect of him trying to become better himself. He would surround himself with people who he felt he could learn something from. And as it happened, they would learn things from Miles Davis as well, but he didn't care. Like he, That wasn't really his focus. He didn't really give a shit, right? That's what an iconoclast is. They're all about the work. Uh, they always have that beginner's mind, that kind of, it's it's a Buddhist thing, supposedly that beginner's mindset I'm always a student and something I've always focused on with my own career and with use because and with doing a podcast and all that is that I always want to have a beginner's mind I always if you if you think you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong room you basically want to be the stupidest person in the room you want to be around other people it's actually shown it's like uh, Steve Jobs he used to hire people he'd say I'm I'm hiring them so they'll tell us what to do not so that we can not so that we can tell them what to do and that's the difference between like a, a shitty manager or a crap boss and a super boss. A super boss understands that I'm hiring in the talent. You tell me what to do. Of course, I still have the vision and I still have the authority to decide what what we're going to pull the trigger on and what we're going to say no to. But tell you tell me what like I hired you to solve problems for for this vision that we should all share. That's what a super boss does. Um, so Miles Davis was all about the work, all about uh, pulling the best out of other people so that he could become better himself. The second type of super boss then is the glorious bastards who want to win at all costs. And he talks, he actually talks a lot about this guy, um, uh, Larry Ellison from uh, Oracle, who started Oracle. Uh, he <laughs> he used to he used to have this uh, managing technique called MBR, right? Managed by ridicule. Uh, he would basically humiliate people in in board meetings, um, but the idea was that this would supercharge your career. Even though you might end up hating Larry, uh, your you'll, you'll get opportunities that you you may have you may not have gotten as early in your career, um, because you're working for somebody who doesn't give a shit about the rules, doesn't care what's supposed to you know what the the hiring structure is or what the promotion structure is. If he sees somebody who's uh, brilliant and challenging him and making him better and, and helping the organization to win then you're the guy right that's the way he would look at it so managing by ridicule may or may not be something that you want to do you want it's you know it's a, it's a nightmare night, nightmare for hr but that's just it's his company and if you don't want to if you don't want to work here then you can leave that was his approach the third type of super boss then is the nurturer this is the person who 
will sit beside you and guide you through the nuances of your role. So it could be the CEO sitting beside the, the new hire who's working in customer support to help them understand what their role actually is and help them to understand how to, to solve a case or whatever it is. That's the kind of person who the the new hire, the, the person in customer support, they naturally then want to impress the CEO. And if the CEO is doing that for everybody, then you're onto a great thing and you're, you're, you're essentially the, the nurturer. So even though there's three completely different types of of super bosses they all share some of them the same characteristics like i said already uh, they're really competitive and they don't fear anything all they really understand or all they really want to hear about is solutions right they don't believe in problems they believe in opportunities and they only want to talk about solutions they have extreme confidence and they are like i said they are fearless right they don't care about anything but one of the things that a super boss will do as well is they'll be very um vision focused if you like i don't know if, if that's an expression but they're they're always focused on the bigger picture that's it's like when you know when somebody starts a business what turns them from an individual contributor in the business to actually running the business is that that mindset it's the difference between working in your company as opposed to working on your company i think i have that right the idea being that you can be an individual contributor actually you know setting up the the hootsuite uh stuff to get sent out the social media stuff or uh, writing code or you could be working on your business like what's the vision for my company and some of the best uh ceos out there they spend at least one day a week uh thinking and reading and uh setting goals for themselves and for the company if you're just if you're working in the business going from from meeting to meeting to meeting you're not really doing your job you should be hiring you should be trying to replace yourself at all times in those kinds of uh, individual contributor roles so that you're working on the business you're actually ensuring that you are the one with the vision and this is what he says in the book about super bosses that they're the ones who have the vision and he talks about ralph Lauren, who would uh, imagine a scenario where say somebody was going skiing from the second they got into the car at home until they arrived at the uh, ski lift or whatever they would arrive at, what would they be wearing? Uh, how would they get there? He wanted to create this vision of, so what he would do is he'd create this vision in his own head of of the style of a person, uh, their suitcase, their sunglasses, their ski gear, all of those things. He And then he'd just fill in the blanks. What do we not have? What What bits do we not offer at the moment? that's that's what a, a, a super boss does and it, it doesn't matter if it's ralph Lauren selling sunglasses or um the ceo of campbell soup selling soup or the ceo of gillette selling razors or miles davis trying to get better it's all about having that vision and trying to kind of color it in the whole time or kind of to uh to bring every to bring the whole team with you to that point of this is what we're trying to achieve that's that's the difference between working uh, in your company and on your company they also say in the book that the the super bosses are authentic the the charisma that they have the reason that they can get people to to follow them is because they are uh, they're they're authentic and they have integrity and what that really means is that they they they'll do what they'll say they'll do even if it means, like I said, sitting beside somebody in customer service for a full shift, that's what they'll do. 
right? They there's no acting. They are their they are them true. They're, I'll say that again. They are their true selves at all times. So even though you might not necessarily like Larry Ellison's approach in, in Oracle of uh, of management by ridicule. You can't deny that that is authentic, right? Authentic doesn't necessarily mean likable. It means I'm a bastard and you if you want to do great things, then you're just going to have to put up with me and my honesty. Not for everyone. I don't know if, uh, if that flies these days, the way the world is, but that's what they ultimately do, right? They, they, they are themselves. I am who I am. This is how it's going to be. So, so there's some of the characteristics that the the three different types of super bosses have: the the iconoclast, glorious bastard, and the nurturer. That's uh, that's actually chapter one. That's the, the the title of chapter one. Chapter two then is uh, what the the super bosses want to do is what they're good at doing is spotting people who get it, who understand that you know, if you've ever hired somebody or you've ever worked with somebody and their favorite phrase is that's not my job. I, why do I have to do that? That's not my job. That's the person who does not get hired by the super boss. They have to have the right type of intelligence, and they have to be, um, they have to have flexibility and creativity. And um, a lot of the time, super bosses they'll look for people who are unqualified. They're not. They're not hemmed in by somebody having the the the, the right magic piece of paper. And they'll keep going after that person because they spot something in that person. But it's, again, in the book, they tell stories as well about plenty of times when super bosses thought they had somebody who was going to be brilliant. And it turned out that person wasn't particularly brilliant. So what they do is they fire them. Like they hire slowly, fire fast. That's the idea. One of the things they say is that an average boss will hire second rate. They'll hire the person who can probably get the job done. And they think that the people who are first rate are kind of oddballs, right? But those super bosses spot something in those supposed supposed oddballs. Uh, they spot that superior talent, but they also manage to um, balance that superior talent or that oddballness with what they talk about in chapter seven, which is the cohort effect. Cohort being a, a group of people, essentially. The idea being that there's there's no room for assholes, and we've said it before. In I definitely said it. We've said it in in the book Legacy by James Kerr, which is in the it is in in our uh, library of podcasts. And I said it recently in some other podcast where they said no dickheads or no assholes or something like that. I think it might have been the most recent one. Uh, Subtle art of not giving a fuck. I think I think that book mentions having no assholes. Basically, the idea being that don't there's no you can hire brilliant people who are nice. There's no need to hire brilliant people that are assholes. That's the, the gist in this book. It's the gist in Legacy, which is all about the All Blacks and how they uh, cultivate this this sense of leadership or this sense of togetherness. And uh, So they say it in this book as well, is that they, they, even though you might hire an oddball, you, you have to be an oddball but still be nice, right? And just because somebody's an oddball or just because somebody doesn't have the right qualifications doesn't mean they can't do the job. You're looking for something beyond that. You're looking for that creativity or that flexibility. They talk about uh, Lorne Michaels, who is the, I think it was the creator of of Saturday Night Live, or um, he's definitely the producer. I know he's the main guy who's been there for whatever, 40 years. He says, like I said earlier on, is that you always want to be the stupidest person in the room. He, He hires in that comedic talent because they're the comedians. He, he might have a note here and there for how they might improve something. But he said, but some of the people who've been on that show are interviewed in the book as well. And they say, you know, he would generally leave us to it towards the end of the week. So if you don't know Saturday Night Live, it's um, 
live sketches on a Saturday night on uh, in New York. And they would they would basically on a Sunday up until the Saturday afternoon they would they would be basically creating these sketches out of nothing and performing them then on Saturday night. So the only time that Lauren Michaels would have something to say might be towards the end when there's it's it's uh, they've got twenty minutes too much material. Uh, they they might he he'll kind of you know um, stick his nose in and say well what about this and what about that but most of the time he would just leave them to it he wants to he just like they're the talent that's his job is to find the right talent and 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 get them to do uh, what they want to do they also talk about people who get it who will they'll also be the same kind of people who will challenge the the super boss right they. They want. Uh, they want. They don't assume that they're right all the time. We've all had bosses like that. People who say, you know, it's my way, or the highway kind of thing, and you end up rolling your eyes, going, "That's grand. This is the stupidest way of doing this." But okay, that's what you want, and you say all that in your own head, right? Whereas a super boss wants to be challenged. So you think about how you are as a leader, or the people who you report to, or the people that you could possibly see as being um, open to feedback. Right? That's the best way of putting it these super bosses want to be challenged they they welcome constructive criticism and they also want to create superstars they also and it's again this is you know I, i've said this loads of times now on podcasts that some of the some of the best leaders in the world whether it's in sport or business or wherever they're they're not afraid of other people being better they almost want to kind of lift them up and push them up above them like you go you go be a superstar now Right, uh, they don't really necessarily want the limelight, and in that book Legacy, they talk about being um, uh, a water carrier. Right, the guy, the the real leaders are the ones who who don't want the the limelight. They 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 lead by example, and they do the the thankless jobs basically. They also talk about, and this is something that's that I've personally experienced when I've worked for for organisations before, is that they they'll move people around rather than firing them. I've seen it happen where. Um, a really good manager or a really good super boss in this case, they, they rather than just kind of saying, okay, he's no good at this job, they might move somebody to a different part of the business altogether and it's sink or swim. They're not necessarily looking to be friends, but they, they probably trust themselves a bit more that they spotted something in this individual, so I'm going to try them in something else. And during the hiring process, they want to know about you. And this ties into what we said at the beginning of this chapter, uh, they have to be creative and flexible. They want to know about you. Don't, don't give me the highlights from your CV. I have your CV. I've read it. That's why you're in the in the room being interviewed. Tell me about you. What do you do for fun? How do you spend your spare time? What really annoys you? What is uh, something that really excites you? What's your what's your favorite thing to do on a Saturday afternoon? Right. Those kinds of things are what the the super bosses are looking for. They want to know about. The whole individual because they want the whole individual to come to work not just putting on an act for eight hours and then going home and being their, their real self they want to hire uh, somebody who's authentic and has integrity just like them chapter three then is motivating exceptional people to do the impossible so they they tell a story about uh, ralph loren who um a, a guy who worked for him I have his name written down here let me see if i can pronounce it uh, Cesar Cesarani, uh, Cesar, I assume that's a surname, Cesarani, uh, who worked for Ralph Lauren, uh, who basically had Stockholm Syndrome, right, who Ralph Lauren pushed him and pushed him and pushed him right to the brink until the point he had to basically quit because uh, he, 
had a young family and he had to, um, you know, hadn't got time to play with the kids and all that kind of stuff. And his, his personal life was suffering. So he quit. But, uh, and he said he remembers Ralph Lauren kind of almost kind of slowly shaking his head going, how could you quit? How could you, how could you give up on this vision on this? He, like Ralph Lauren felt sorry for the guy for quitting. He didn't feel hard done by. He's like, I just don't understand how you could just walk away from this. There's one thing I noticed in this book, though, and it's uh, it's an interesting take because of of you know other books I've read. But the celebration in the book seems to be about wealth. That uh, Ralph Lauren was successful because he was very very rich, and um, he accumulated a lot of money. But to me, that's not a great metric for success. And that's not to say that it's not um, a useful metric for success. But the focus in the book seems to be on, um, it's it's like the unwritten uh, rule in the book that, well, he made a lot of money, so that's that's how we define success. I don't think I would necessarily define success. It's just, when I think about reading about uh, Ralph Lauren, there was a lot of talk about, you know, the amount of billions that he'd accumulated before he died. And, uh, that was a, a measure of, of his great success. I don't necessarily think it is. I think a better a better metric of his success is how people talked about him decades later, like that guy Cesarani, who uh, still spoke fondly of him like 25 or 30 years later. So they also talk about as well how how to motivate exceptional people to do the impossible, how they don't necessarily... The, these super bosses, they don't necessarily offer much in the way of congratulations. It's always on to the next thing. And one person who's not mentioned in the book is Alex Ferguson, who, I, who, who I've noticed over the years when he was manager of Man United, that he would obviously be happy the day they would win a trophy. But you could almost see him walking off the pitch after, after the celebrations, already thinking about next season. Like Obviously, I don't know what he was thinking, but it always looked like that, that Grant, that's fine, that's that done, what's next? And it's like I said in the last episode that there is no path to happiness. The path is happiness. For people like Alex Ferguson or Ralph Lauren or um, uh, Larry Ellison from Oracle, th- there's no there's no final destination for these people. They enjoy the the struggle. They enjoy the process of figuring out these these problems as they go. And of course, the money is good and the the success is welcome. But to them. It's about the challenge of, of overcoming these things on a day-to-day or week-by-week basis. And one of the reasons that they're able to do that is because their confidence is unshakable. They truly, truly, truly believe in their mission and nothing is going to shake them off course. Kind of like me and usebecause.com. Nothing is going to shake me off this course of uh, bringing the, the best of these books to people and help them to learn deeper. I digress. So, super bosses, their confidence is unshakable they just they're not interested in anyone who says it can't be done it's just thrown on the pile of uh, of of, uh, of challenges to them is what they say so they don't necessarily want to make money or become famous they want to make an impact and if you listen to our most recent uh, i was going to say our lesson most recent podcast called a subtle art of not giving a fuck towards the end of that episode and actually towards the end of the book he talks about a guy i think his name is decker might be becker or something like that, Decker, I think, who talks, who's a philosopher, and he talks about how there are, everybody has uh, has two people kind of living in their heads, or kind of two, two people um, they're responsible for. One is the physical selves, the person who uh, eats and sleeps and, and dreams and whatever. And then there's the, uh, the conceptual self, the person who 
uh, thinks about their their finite time on this earth, and he talks about immortality projects that these people, these people being basically everyone, immortality projects are people are sorry immortality projects are projects that you put in place or put into motion to help you not die right the physical self will definitely die but the conceptual self the idea of me being around can possibly live on through um, my name on a building through uh, doing 41 podcasts through doing uh creating the ralph Lauren brand right those kinds of things so the super bosses don't necessarily want to make money or become famous they want to make an impact that's what it says in this book but really that ties into the last book we did the subtle art of not giving a fuck by mark uh, manson uh, that this impact that they want to make is essentially uh these immortality projects that they just don't want their name to die they want to 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 remain um living on in people's memories uh, i remember hearing a, a quote before that uh <laughs> you die twice the day that you actually die and the day that uh the last time your name is spoken by somebody which was that was pretty profound when i heard that i said god that is mad so imagine that imagine imagine you die then your friends and family talk about you for years to come but at some point in the hopefully very very distant future there will come a time where nobody ever says your name ever again how crazy is that madness anyway try and try and start an immortality project leaves a positive impact on the world would be would be my uh, my advice start a podcast so uh, chapter four then is they are uncompromisingly open so they expect these super bosses they expect uh innovation at every level not just at the execution level and they don't want people just to do their job they want you to innovate and do it faster and better and more efficiently uh nothing is sacred right that's and again, and again we've all hopefully everyone has worked for a boss like that who doesn't give a shit how it gets done just get it done and uh, it's like um mark zuckerberg building facebook said to move fast and break things which in in the end they broke democracy which is probably not <laughs> not the idea went a bit far with that but the idea is still sound i think in most cases that if you're hiring somebody you don't you're you're looking to empower them to you tell me how the job can be done better it's like the ceo sitting beside somebody in customer service or customer support you tell me how it can be done better i don't know you're the one working here eight hours a day you tell me what the inefficiencies are and we'll see if we can help because nothing is sacred and we've all worked for bosses who just say just get on with the job the job is a job you do your thing clock in clock out and uh just kind of uh keep everything moving right so what they'll what a super boss will do is they'll give permission to try things like and and that is so empowering if you're working for a a boss you say like i have this idea i think i think if we did it this way this it might be a bit quicker it might not though and they go yeah go for it tell me what you're going to try and uh, what does success look like okay report back to me in a week let me know how it goes right and that and that's what a great boss is because and then what it does is it engages you in the job you don't just feel like a drone in a in a job that anyone could do you feel like well i have my own personal stamp on this now so uh, this is good so every process every idea is up for discussion they don't they don't hold anything uh, as sacred and i think that's probably why an average boss doesn't want to rock the boat because they don't have confidence in themselves whereas a super boss they have total confidence in themselves and in the mission uh they don't give a shit right and that's that's 
they don't not that they don't give a shit they 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 don't care about breaking rules if it's going to help achieve the vision or achieve the goal chapter five then is about masters and apprentices and he talks about one of my favorite people leonardo da vinci um great book by walter isaacson uh, you'll become a da vinci expert reading that and an, and an expert in art as well but he talks about da vinci how da vinci worked for um he apprenticed under a guy called verrocchio and Verrocchio realised within a couple of years that Da Vinci was way better. But rather than trying to hold Da Vinci back, he just he, he set him up with his own workshop and he still did some work for Verrocchio. He recognised the brilliance and um, let him off, let him go, right? And then he talks about um, Michael Miles in the book as well, who was the CEO of Kraft Food, who would have a a morning conversation with somebody random. So in the company, he'd go up and just tap somebody on the shoulder and say, come on up to my office. And he'd talk to them. Now, he wouldn't talk to them like, you know, how do you have kids? What are your hobbies? He would be nice and he would be um, polite to the person, but he would basically pepper them with questions. And what he was doing, he was looking to find somebody who could, I suppose, ultimately become the CEO of Kraft Food. He'd look for somebody who could, who, who can be my apprentice, who I can push right to the top and beyond me as well. Same thing with Da Vinci and Verrocchio. Verrocchio noticed him. So Verrocchio had like a, a studio with loads of apprentices and then obviously Da Vinci uh, stood out um, among them all and he didn't hold him back, he, he, he pushed him on. And the same with uh, Michael Miles, the CEO of Kraft Food, he would just pick somebody at random and say like, well, what's your story? What do you do? What do we do wrong? <laughs> and in the book, and I'd never thought about this before, but in the book he talks about that show, uh, Undercover Boss, and he says how tragic it is that these people... If you don't know what undercover boss is, basically CEO of or the you know the, the owner of some big fancy company gets into a disguise and goes and works, you know whether it's at the CEO of Burger King or something. They go and they work on the fry station in one of the restaurants to see what exactly is going on, and then they end up giving you know they always find somebody worthwhile and they give them loads of money or give them a promotion or something. But he says that the TV show Undercover Boss is absolutely tragic that they have to go on a show like that to find out what's happening in their own company. And I'd, I'd never really considered that. Going, yeah, it's so true that they don't know how badly their company is being run because they, uh, they're they not paying attention, right? And again, oh, I wish I could remember. It's one of the episodes we talk about how a CEO is protected all the time. Like some CEOs of like big companies, I remember in one of the episodes we did a couple of months ago, it, there was a CEO of uh, Toyota or someone like that who had like three assistants who, was, who were responsible for managing his time. So because they were responsible for managing his time, anyone who came to see him, they never really sh- they'd never really shoot the breeze with him. They'd just kind of get to the point really quickly and tell him pretty much what he wanted to hear, even if they didn't mean to do it that way. That's generally what happened. So... If you're the leader of a company, do you actually know what's going on in the warehouse or on the phones? And it's not to micromanage people. It's it's to approach it with an open mind, that that kind of beginner's mind. Well, tell me, what, how can I help you do this better? What would make your life easier? And they talk, they, I've, I've read before about Bill Gates back when he was running Microsoft, that he would try and hire lazy people because they would find the most efficient way of doing things. Obviously, there's, a, there's caveats involved there that um, somebody isn't just bone lazy that they actually are willing to do the work as well um i always think of three things anytime i've hired somebody um in previous roles i always think that uh can someone do the job do they have the right qualifications or the right skill set will they do the job 
um, are they intrinsically motivated to do it? And thirdly, how will they fit in? Right, they're basically the three things. But it ties in with what Bill Gates would do that, you know, can they and will they do the job? Will they do it efficiently? And will they find um, the inefficiencies and, and um, exploit them? Uh, the the masters and apprentices that they talk about in these in, in as super bosses these masters I suppose they don't want special treatment they're not looking for a corner office or a um, an allocated parking spot uh, they they just want they just want to they, it's all about the vision it's all about the, the 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 mission to get these things done chapter six then is the hands on delegator. Uh, the hands-on delegator sounds like uh, is it an oxymoron or a contradiction or something? You can't be hands-on and delegate at the same time. But really, what they're talking about here is that they, uh, what I mentioned before about Steve Jobs, they want to hire people so they can tell us what to do. Uh, they want to be hands-on, but they to allow people to rebrand themselves essentially, they to 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 move around the company to absorb as much information as they can. The last thing a super boss wants is somebody who is compliant. Right? They want somebody who's going to, to rock the boat. So if you ask yourself, if you're working 24-7 because you're you're filling in all the gaps for your team, you have to ask yourself, are you delegating enough? Right? You can be hands-on and still delegate. You can, be, you can give lots of direction and lots of support, but don't actually do the job for somebody. Let them make mistakes and be a hands-on delegator. The... Towards the end of the book, then he talks about the at the cohort effect, and they tell a story about Saturday Night Live and the few people that he interviewed in the book for for super bosses talk about working on Saturday Night Live and how it, it was like this uh, sense of doom that they uh, had to get it done. It has to be done by this Saturday, and because of that collective sense of doom, they were all kind of in jail together, and uh, they just had to get it done. So this cohort effect is a, is a real thing where if you can create this sense of even if it's all of them against you as the leader, so be it. If that's what if that's the the angle it needs to be taken to get it done, that would be like Larry Ellison. Uh, you know, you can imagine him having a, a board meeting and all of the board having a pre meeting to figure out what everyone's going to say, how they're going to say it. Have we got all our uh, T's crossed and I's dotted kind of thing? And uh, it creates that sense of togetherness, right? And I've said it before. I probably said it in the most recent podcast and the one before that. I don't think it really matters what job you're working in as long as you're working in an interesting team or a good team, I should say, that's solving interesting problems. I think that the cohort that you work with, the group of people that you work with is more important than anything. Um, and in that, as part of that cohort effect, uh, there's no assholes. You get, not, just, there's no assholes allowed in there. And your job as the leader is to weed out the assholes and to, to basically be the referee probably in, in some stages as well. Uh, they also, the super bosses never criticize their team. They protect their team at all costs. And I remember hearing about uh, Jose Mourinho when he was the, the Chelsea manager, the, the English football team, Chelsea. When he was the manager, he was asked, uh, when you're doing interviews, who are you really talking to? You're talking to the supporters, um, to the board of management, to your players, uh, to the public, who exactly are you are you really aiming your 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 comments at? And he said, number one is the players. Number two is the players. Number three is the players. Always to the players. Everything he says, everything he did was either protect the players or to 
and big them up in public or everything was about that cohort kind of keeping that sense of cohesion in the team and uh, same with Alex Ferguson he, ne- he never criticized the team in public and he was famous for you know taking the heads off people in the dressing room but then he would never he would never ever criticize them in public um, and that's how you create a cohort the final thing they say about this cohort effect and it's a really interesting is this, this principle he calls the 2c principle and the two C's stand for collaboration and competition. So any good team has to have that right balance between collaboration and competition. And it's your job to figure that out. It's your job to figure out what exactly is um, it, does the competition look like without causing uh, conflict, but also have enough collaboration there as well. So it's you know friendly competitions, but maybe not that friendly. Um, it's about it's 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 a finely balanced thing. The same like like. I'm not a particularly huge soccer fan, but it's an interesting uh, analogy to use or an interesting example to use that Alex Ferguson always had two people competing for each uh, position, at least two people, if not more. And that creates enough competition and collaboration that you know he continuously swap the team around and give everyone a run. Um, and, and that was how he found the balance and, and kind of you know uh, found his way to success with the team. The second last, the last chapter is just about super bosses and you. There's questions in there for you to answer, which I've kind of I've touched on some of them. But if you're going to read the book, um, page two hundred and one has lots of questions for you to answer about what type of boss you are, what type of boss you'd like to be. Um, but chapter eight, the the second last chapter, the penultimate chapter, is about networks of success. When people leave super bosses, they never really leave the super boss. That like uh, the the CEO of Kraft Foods. I think I hope I have this right now. It's, it was if it wasn't him, it was somebody else in the book. But essentially, he would uh, have apprentices, or he would mentor people who then went on to become CEOs of Mattel and Campbell Soup and Gillette and Nabisco, loads of huge big companies, and that then became his network. So even though the people officially left him and left his his company. They never really, they never really left because it's just his his network. This guy, um, Michael Mo- Michael Miles was his name. They n- they never really left him because that just he's just widening his net of 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 network. So that that's something for you to think about as well. So, uh, Super Bosses is a great read. Uh, we've covered a good bit there in the last thirty nine minutes. Sidney Finkelstein. F-I-N-K-E-L-S-T-E-I-N. Sydney spelled S-Y-D-N-E-Y. How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. Great book. On to the next one. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Hey, before you go, just a quick message about usebecause.com and what we're all about. We believe that true learning happens when you understand, remember, and deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. So with that in mind, you can get access to our purpose-built learning tools to help you do just that. To really embed the knowledge from this episode, take a look at the interactive summary that goes along with it. And then use the action log to set a time and a date to go out into the big bad world and deliberately practice the key takeaways from this episode. You do all that and you get yourself a certificate of completion. So try all our tools for all of our episodes, free for a month, you can cancel any time. For all of this, and all of the podcast episodes, head over to usebecause.com. Until next time.